biggest thing this camp does is teaches staff and young people how to spend long periods of time in the presence of the Lord and enjoy it. Praise the Lord, we can't count how many have gotten saved here through the years, but if I had to define this camp, what its main purpose is, that's its main purpose. I'll be honest, my ultimate goal for this week is to see the children a door on the floor. Just waiting for him. Thank you, Lord, waiting for you. Thank you, Jesus, waiting for you, Lord. For you, Lord. You're the one, Lord, who enables us to do what we're here for. Should you pull away, Lord, this camp will be embarrassing. Thank you, Lord. You are the true vine, and we are merely branches. Get all of our life juice from you. So Lord, all of us in this room, we're looking to you, true vine, for that precious sap to flow from you into us, Lord, so we'd be green and fresh and full of life and fruit that the children can eat, Lord Jesus. The disciples were recognized as having been with Jesus. Here we are, Lord. We come to be with you, the fountain of life. And in your light, we see light. The stakes are very high, dear ones, of what happens this week. I don't even like to say it in the context of children, but it's true. We will do one of two things this week. We will provide the means through the word of God for entrance into the celestial city for these precious ones. And the only other thing we'll do for those who choose to reject it is we will be evidence on that great day. Evidence of what those who rejected the gospel rejected. There are only two things that happen in the presentation of the gospel. It's very sobering. The stakes are so high.
As I walked around this room last night in the dark, except for the light on the cross, praying with Kim, I just told her and told the Lord, Jesus, you can never pray enough. Lord, there can never be too much prayer offered for what happens here. The stakes are so high. I make it a nightly habit when I go to bed to think of scripture before I fall asleep. And one of the texts I often go to is from Luke chapter 16 the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. That's a pretty sobering text, Michael, yes. But it keeps me sober when the world is drunk in its own party spirit. Everything in the world is a distraction, a delusion of what is really happening. The devil has a giant black blanket over the whole world. We know that we are of God, of the truth, and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. 1 John 5, 19. He has blinded the minds of unbelievers that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So all the entertainment and every kind of venue with movies and TV and sports, you name it, behind it all, it's the devil just keeping people preoccupied with things temporal and vain and fleeting and will not be remembered in eternity. His goal is to keep people preoccupied with anything but the truth. So we're here this week to pop that bubble that so many of the children are in. Lord Jesus, only you can do it, Lord. Thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, that we can't and we don't want to make anything happen, God forbid. We cast ourselves on you, Lord. We cast ourselves on you, Lord. Something's going to happen tomorrow. It happens every year, every camp. Right out there, all of a sudden, you're going to see all these cars pull up. One after another. Out of the cars, of course, are going to get the parents or the guardians. And of course, out of every car, you're going to have children coming out of those cars. Why? Well, they're coming to camp with all the excitement that only a child can fester. But they're coming here and they don't realize it, but when they get out of their cars, very, very soon, they're going to board a submarine, a spiritual one. And it happens every camp, every year. And it won't be long while they're here that all of a sudden they'll start going deep. That's the theme. Take them deep, just like we do the senior high and the junior high and the staff every year, every camp, by God's grace. We all board a submarine. What's the theme? The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. You think about it. Just ponder it for a little while, beloved. We are taking these children to ponder the deep things of God. You need to try to discipline yourself to think of deep space often. 
so you keep the perspective of God as it should be, that we are less than microscopic in this universe compared to him. The devil and human flesh, its bent is always to shrink God and make him small. If you do that, you don't appreciate the incarnation. You're not in awe with your jaw on the floor. And 10 million times more than that is the crucifixion. The bigger your concept of God, the more you're astounded by what he's done. His omnipresence, his omniscience, his wisdom, his love, his long-suffering, all the attributes of God. And we have five days to take the children to depths they've never been. That's why I, you'll never hear me stop saying our camp must be text-driven, theology-driven. Like I said earlier this afternoon, it's very, very easy to hype up children and teenagers. But you see, when you have the word of God, which is life in itself, be the basis of what they respond to in versus emotion, <clears throat> then when the camp setting is over or whatever it is that was used to hype them up, if you give them the text, then when they go home, they have that fountain down there that they can have a camp experience anytime. That's our goal. Now, taking them deeper in God. I don't know if you brothers over there can see it. These are the campers. But Michael, this is children's camp and those are adult dolls. Yes. If you want to have effectual ministry with children, you must also constantly discipline yourself to see them as what they will be in a few short years. Eight years ago, many of these children were in their mommy's tummies. What were we doing eight years ago? The same exact things we will do this week. Eight years ago, Noah's three sons came out of the time machine. Eight years ago, Lincoln and Grant and the Union Army appeared on the field up there. The same building, the same Holy Spirit that's in the room now. And many of these children were in their mommy's tummies. And eight years later, here they are. Before you know it, those precious children are going to be out of this camp and into junior high and senior high and married with their own campers. I've been around here long enough to see it constantly. It gives you such an increased burden to minister to them when you try to view them, if you will, three-dimensionally. I tried to do it as long as I can remember as a children's pastor is when I see these cute little boys and girls here that I'm seeing before we know it, before we can blink an eye, are adults. Do you have the picture of the, of the little girl? We'll see some of those this week, won't we? And some of you little angels are going to be caring for them for five days. Before you know it, that little angel there will look like this. It happens so quickly. Life is a vapor. I try to view that all the time with children. It's before we know it, they're going to be in the cemetery and in eternity, constantly trying to view children so it keeps vision going because without vision you have no burden. With no burden you have no compassion. So these are things I try to discipline myself. Thank you. Now. That's why the adult dolls. Now, every one of these dolls, so to speak, that comes in here, this room tomorrow, they also will have a glow ball. What in the world are those, do those stand for, Michael? These are their souls, their spirits. Now, some of them, some of them are glowing. What does that mean? They've been regenerated. Some of them aren't glowing. 
Notice they still have a soul, but we know from Ephesians chapter 2, until there's repentance and turning towards Christ, they're dead in trespasses and sin. So they'll come with a soul, spirit, but the glow ball, some will be on and some will be off. And every single one of them is going to spend eternity in only one of two places. The devil loves to tell people that there are more than two possible places. And billions of people have believed him. There are only two. And every single child tomorrow that we see will be in one of two places. Now, believe me, you. Believe me, you, me. Because they're children, you want to believe every... Oh, my dear Michael, every single child, of course they're going to make it. That's what I want to believe. Uh, bear with my immaturity uh, a little bit, which you often do, I'm sure. But um, with our own three children, I still have this feeling at times. Is I always wanted for years to keep our three children, Matthew, Laura, and Caleb, children elementary age. I call it that magical age of child, elementary age to me. And I wanted to keep them that age forever. And just as their dad, as their, their shepherd, if you will, is to just protect them and make sure they made it. And I wanted the five of us, Kim and the three kids and us, just to stay in that family and nucleus for our whole lives and all go to heaven together. Michael, you are immature. I know. But that's the emotions. And so as I was walking around this room, I was telling Kim, honey, I'm feeling it again. And yet this time, it's the whole room of children. I just wish I could take them all and just hold them all in my arms and protect them and keep, keep every one of them away from all the heartaches and the trials and the issues of life and just make sure they all get there safely. That's not in me. All I care about of left to myself is myself. I told Kim, Jesus gave me a little glimpse of his shepherding heart. You just want every kid to make it. But I painfully know that not every kid is going to make it. We know that from the words of the Lord Jesus. So, what do we have going on here this week, beloved? This is the window of opportunity. This is a very precious time, is it not? Childhood? How many of you remember when you were in kids' camp? Did it seem like that when you went from kids' camp to junior high and senior high? And now look at you, you're counseling. Did it go fast? Mm -hmm. And ask any of us older ones in here, right? It goes faster as you get older, doesn't it? It's like, before I realize it, you know, Kim and I go to bed at night and I'm thinking to myself, oh my dear, it's felt like we just got in bed minutes ago and it's time to go to sleep again already. And they just, one, the days roll into each other. And so one of the most powerful verses for children, young people and adults is Psalm 90 verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we might become wise. Every single day without exception, I ponder how old I am and how much time I have left. If the Lord gives me time, never presume you're going to be given a long life. That is not afforded to many people. It's a privilege. So as Kim and I pace and pray around the inside of our home, I don't know how many times I brought that up in prayer. Lord, I thank you. You've given us another Lord's Day, or, or if we aren't praying on a Sunday like that, in a weekday, that Lord, that Lord, whatever time that you give me to have left on the earth, Lord, we don't have a day to waste. Every single day must be lived for you because we're going to give an account to him for every day and what we do with it. So here, these precious children, uh, adults, would you agree with me that the older you get, if left to yourself, the harder you get? Cynical, critical, just judgmental, just indifferent, that's the nature of the human heart, if left to itself. So what? In Proverbs chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Solomon wrote this of his father David. And he said that when I was the only son of my father and still tender, still tender, what did David do? Solomon said, he taught me. He taught me. 
was still tender. Solomon was the wisest man in all the world in his day. He even knew, he even knew, when I was young, that's when I was tender. And David had the wisdom to teach his son at that time. How many of you noticed with yourselves, how many of you parents have noticed with your children that the older they get, the less teachable they are? And I know there's a place where you stop giving advice. I had purpose, and I told Kim and my kids this, that when they, the, the second they, three of them said, I do, and they were in a marriage thing, all my fatherly advice, as far as I was concerned, was over unless they asked me for it. That's just my personal thing, you know. But there is a place that you have oftentimes children, teenagers, depending on what's going on in their heart, they're much less teachable. That's why Jesus said, you know, that you, unless you humble yourself as a little child, you'll never see heaven. So Jesus knew by nature, by their constitution being children, that naturally, compared to adults, they were more humble. But what happens? Again, the older you get, the harder you get. So what, what do we have happening here even this week? The window of opportunity is closing. That's why this is an amazingly high privilege to be here this week. That we, that we get five days of concentrated Jesus with them. I, I can think of no higher calling God could give a man or a woman. To me, anything else would be a demotion. Why am I? Because they're children. And so, so many times, and it, it is so sad in, in working with children for decades, is that it seems so many times churches are desperate to scrape people up. Anyone, you know, to try to get people. It's one of the hardest tasks as a child, children's pastors, to get volunteers or people to work, you know? And, uh, and they're crazy. Like, I was crazy. Like, I remember years ago when our children were young and they were looking for children's workers. I mean, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go work with the kids. I wanted to stay in the glory of the adult service. I was missing out on a gold mine I didn't even know existed. You know why? Because I didn't see children as he did. Makes all the difference in the world. Now I can't be with them enough. And I've told the Lord more than once, Lord, if you take me from children and youth, just take me home. Just take me home. It doesn't mean, of course, that aged people aren't very, very precious too, but I think you get what I mean. It's like, what a privilege, and yet nobody wants to work with them. Wow, you, and I've often said, you need to have your best people in the church with your children. Why? Because you can easily lead them astray. There are adults that hide in children's church. I learned the hard way. I didn't have much wisdom back then, but I used to just make, you know, you don't make, I don't make mass invitations to the church anymore. Anyone want to work with our kids? Come. No, because when you do that, the devil gets in line. He'd love to work with your kids. So how I learned through experience is that when I was on staffs at four different churches as a children's pastor, I would watch people. I would watch how they related to the Lord. I would watch how they related to other people. And then when I see, wow, that's what I want. That's the one I want working with the kids. And of course, I'm sure you've heard it too, that if you don't trust a person with your own children, don't trust them with the church's children. You see, isn't it one of the many ironies of the kingdom is that the gold mine and diamond mine of children's ministries, and it's the hardest one to get volunteers for. That's the nature of God, isn't it? He always takes the most unlikely things, and it's the opposite of what the world says. So here we have this window of opportunity that's closing. I want to be part of it. Now, this might surprise some of you, and maybe shock you, I don't know, but it's one of the very sad, hard realities of life is that just like the soils of all of your hearts, children have a soil in their heart too, don't they? Remember what Jesus said? There are only four kinds of people as far as he's concerned. The devil and human beings are always constant, constantly trying to divide humans with everything. All right? But Jesus said basically there are four kinds of people. And what did Jesus divide people up with? Gender. Nope. Uh, race. Nope. No, he divided them up in how they received the word of God. Only four. 
So every person, it's called the parable of the sower, and many scholars, including me, thought it should be the parable of the soils, because much more focuses on the soils than the sower, and yet the reason that we restrain ourselves and call it the parable of the sower is that's what Jesus called it, and he's, he's, the, he's the last word, amen? But the focus is on the soils of the heart. So... I know, it's hard to believe. I don't even want to say it, but cigarette butts. This is like a vacant lot. Beer bottles. Beer cans. I'm not insinuating the children are eating or drinking beer, but no, this might offend you, but it's biblical. In Philippians, Paul refers to the resist the vileness of the human flesh as scubalon, which is basically excrete, excrement, you know, and we come to the Lord with things like that in our hearts. And here's one. What is that? An idol. Thank you. You will have some hearts in here this week, probably like this. Have any of you ever seen a child uh, involved in the sin of idolatry? You're looking at me like I have two heads. I've seen lots of children with idolatry. What do you mean? Anything that you get more excited about emotionally, that you talk about more, that you spend more time on, your money on, than things of the Lord, is an idol. And I see kids all the time more ex excited about talking about it. it can be anything, uh, Pokemon cards, the video games, the sports teams, you name it, than they are the Lord Jesus and his person and his glory and the word of God. That's an idol. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everyone in the room, we're all guilty. We've broken it many times. You see, it's so easy for these things to creep in. Now, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, that the things that happened to the Israelites in the Old Testament happened for a number of reasons. Paul said that those things happened to them so that we would learn from them. These things happened to them so that we, they would be an instruction and a warning to us. So what did Israel do? They craved evil things. They were idolaters. What they basically did in, with their lives, sat down to drink, to eat and drink, and then the only reason that I got it from the table with all that indulgence was to play. Everything was self-indulgence or pleasure. Sound like our culture? You see, idolatry. Now... Then it says in verse 11 that these, the Israel's judgments were for us examples. And so it's, then it says and, uh, another thing, they were written down for our instruction and our warning. So hence, this is why I'm going to share this with you. In 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 4, King, King Manasseh was one of the most evil kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. He reigned for 55 years. It's so very, very hard when the Lord allows someone who was so vile and evil and wicked as Manasseh to reign such a long time. These are things that you just have to fall on the sovereignty of God and that he has to do everything perfectly all the time or you'd get stumbled and probably get bitter against him and walk away because he let such a vile, evil man do what he did for so long. But he has his ways. Now, this is what happened. It says that Manasseh built altars in the house of the Lord. Well, that's good, because the house of the Lord should have... No, it wasn't an altar to the living God, the God of Israel. They were altars to pagan gods. And he didn't build it on the hills outside of Jerusalem. He put it in the temple. Some of you rem may remember um, last, last month, and uh, last month, last year, remember that our theme was rendezvous, and the text was Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 22. And what did it say? That the Lord was talking about meeting Moses and the Israelites in the tabernacle, remember? 
And what did he say? Three things the Lord would do. He said, I will dwell among you there in this very special tent that remember I said that next to the glories and the resplendent glory of God in heaven, the second most resplendent glory location of the Lord of hosts of the whole universe was that little tent in Israel. There was no other place in all the universe. How do you know? Because there's only one God and he only chose one celestial body, the earth, to send his only son to, to die for his people. And this was all part of that progressive plan. So no, there's nowhere else out there that this is happening. So you see, he said, I will dwell with you there. And then what did he tell Moses? I will meet with you there and I will speak to you. So this very hallowed place. And then, of course, we all know that eventually the tabernacle became the temple. And of course, the temple, God gave so many specific instructions for both the tabernacle in Exodus and, of course, the temple in 1 Kings. And what, what was it? Very ornate and covered with gold and special kind of wood that you used and things carved. It was, you, you've read the, the scriptures, you know, detail after detail where this place of God meeting men, very sacred. Remember, remember the time machine drama last year where they carried out Nadab dead on the stretcher? Nadab and Abihu, why? They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord and fire from the Lord came out and consumed them both. Why? Hophni and Phinehas, they were sleeping with women outside the tabernacle of the Lord who came there to serve. This very precious, hallowed location where the presence of God, number two place in the universe, next to heaven, and here they were fornicating with women. And we know at least that Hophni was married, or Phinehas was married. And here, this is what one of God's priests who had the high privilege of being, being next to this dwelling place of the Lord, what they were doing. So what did Manasseh do? This very glorious, not the tabernacle now, now it's the temple. Well, Manasseh builds idols inside the temple of the Lord, where the Lord said, I will cause my name to be there forever. And we might think, foolish, evil, wicked Manasseh and the Israelites who followed his cults. But what, what did Paul say by the Holy Spirit? Why were these things written down? For our instruction. Well, why didn't he tell us for? Because this was only a symbol, a foreshadow of God dwelling in you. So think about it. We have so much more than the saints in the Old Testament had. And look what we do with our hearts. You have more idols. I have more idols than you can possibly imagine. But you never see them. Jacob's sister, she said one of the most profound things I've ever heard, where I even put it in my monthly newsletter uh, for uh, this month or last month. Uh, Maggie, she uh, was a camper, and, and she said that the, the idols that you can see, I wish I could remember the quote. I, I should have written it down. But it was something like, um, idols, uh, outward idols are easy to see but hard to make. But then she said, idols in our hearts are hard to see, but easy to make. Something like that. It was like, wow. You see. Now, and believe it or not, like I said earlier, children will be coming this week with idols, with activities, with things they own that are more important to them when you boil it all down than the Lord himself. I know this is hard stuff to hear with children, but hey, if we're going to effectively minister to them, you have to know their nature. Do children know how to sin? Children know how to lie? To your face. With tears. I didn't do it. I know. Now. So can we show the, see the first part of that video? Um, Okay, if you'd pause it there, Jonas. Thank you. Okay. Many campers will come with hearts like that. Many staff will come with hearts like that. Directors come to camp with hearts like that. Well, how do you know? Because we're human, and we fight it every day. 
the world, right? The flesh and the devil are every single day encroaching on us. And there are times we give in and succumb and don't even realize we have. That's, and we'll see how we detect it and get rid of it. So there they are, just all over the place in campers' hearts. Now, um, and it's one of, the, one of the saddest things to see, especially in a child. So this is how they come. Now, let's go on a little bit further in the video. This is what we're trusting is going to happen in the child's hearts, in our hearts. If you would pause it there, buddy, thank you. Notice how when the finger was put in the bowl with the soap on it, everything went to the peripheral, periphery. How's that going to happen? It happens, and how many of you have been counseling for a number of, a number of years now? Do you notice that in each one of you? That before you get to camp, what, you know, when you come to camp, you realize you have a lot more pepper in there than you thought you did. But you, do, you, do, do you notice that, what, even you campers who haven't counseled yet, but you're on the, on the threshold, have you noticed all the years you've been coming since you were children that your hearts, you didn't realize how much pepper you had in there, but remember at the end of the week, you felt like so much was pushed out of the way and geez, you were cleansed and, and those things were pushed to the periphery as Jesus rose up in the middle, right? How does that happen? Well, of course, by going deeper into God. That's how it was all pushed back. Now, how are we, how are we gonna see these things pushed back in ourselves and in our campers? Remember again, the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, our theme verse. Then it says, in verse 12, we have the Holy Spirit, this same Spirit inside of us, in verse 12, who knows the depths of God. But, verse 13, how does the Holy Spirit convey all that God is to human beings? This is how he does it. Paul said, with words. And Paul goes, taught by the Spirit. You remember, you've heard me give this, uh, this illustration this before, but it's so important. We'll have to hear it again and again and again. If I take two of you, if you didn't know each other, never talked to each other, had no idea who each other were, and I had you sit at a table opposite each other for five hours in a coffee shop, and all you did was stare at each other, would you know any, each other any better after five hours of just looking at each other? Why? What didn't you do? You didn't talk! Gertie. Lighten up. No, I don't know if we really get that, beloved, is that who you are, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your convictions, the things that you love, the things that you hate, the things that offend you, the things you delight in, everything about you stays in you unless you speak it. We, our words are the vehicles, they're the transporters, if you will, of all that is inside you, who you are, outside to other people. Why is that the way, Michael? Because you're made in the image of God, and he's the same way. You'll never know him unless he speaks. Oh, but Gertie, he can do miracles and do acts. Yeah, but it, you know what? You need the prophets and the word of God to explain his actions, or you misinterpret them. God never does anything in the scriptures without explaining it. Why? Because we're made in his image, and we have to have words to explain the motives and the things that are inside, why God did what he did. So you see, words are central to everything. So that's how Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, is that the way that this happens, that we know God, is by combining spiritual thoughts, the thoughts of God, the Spirit does this, with spiritual words. Now, what happens when that happens? When God speaks a word, because it's the vehicle, or you, if you will, the caboose car, not the, the box car, that carries who he is outside to human beings or to angels, if he speaks to angels, of course, God's word has unbelievable power because, again, they are the vehicles that carry out who he is deep down inside to human beings. And this is why that we see these scriptures, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Right? The word of God is living. 
and it's active. The Greek word there is energes, that we get our English word energy from. The word of God is living and active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it penetrates. Even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. When the Apostle Peter gave his famous sermon on Pentecost, in chapter 2, verse 37, it says, when the Jewish people who were there, who were in the mob that, that called for Jesus' crucifixion, and you can be sure the leaders were there too, what did, what, what did Peter say? It says that when he said these things, it said, you, through the hands of wicked men, crucified him. It says when they heard these things, it says they were literally, the, Hebrew, the Greek is, they were cut to the heart. Did Peter have a sword? He had one in the garden, but what did Jesus say? Put it away. What did Peter have that cut these people right to the heart? He had words. But this time they weren't the insulting, cutting, derogatory words that humans can do all the time to each other. This was the power of the truth of the word of God. And all Peter did was speak it. And the word came and it did what the word of God does. And it pierced these people. And what did they say? What must we do to be saved? Then in Acts chapter 5, verse 33, the apostles were in trouble again for preaching the word of God. But it says that after they had spoken the, those words also, it says that the hearers, it says in the, in the Greek is they were sawn through just by the speaking of the truth of the word of God. It says they were sawn through. Comes from a, a Greek word meaning that. And then in Peter's, in, in the deacon Stephen, remember Stephen's first and last sermon, he gives the whole history of ancient Israel and about the sending of the Messiah. And then he says, and you, though you hear the words of the law, you don't obey them. And then Stephen charged his generation with crucifying Jesus. Same exact Greek word. They were sawn through. And all Stephen did was speak words. What else about the power of the word? Is not my word like fire? and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. Ever been burned by the word of the Lord? Mm-hmm. Speaking of that fire, in Luke chapter 24, verse 32, remember the disciples on the Emmaus Road? They were walking with Jesus. They didn't know who he was. Remember, and all of a sudden, then they, please come with us, come to our house. And so, remember, they broke bread. And as soon as Jesus broke the bread, it says he vanished from their sight. And what did they say? Did not our hearts burn within us as he walked with us along the road and opened up the scriptures to us? All Jesus did was talk, and their hearts were on fire. It's like the soap pushing the pepper away. Wow. The prophet Jeremiah said this. My heart is broken. My bones, they tremble. I'm like a man overcome with wine. I'm like a drunken man. Why, Jeremiah, why? Because of the his holy words. He was like a staggering man falling apart. Why? Because of the Lord and his holy words. Wow. How is it possible again? Because remember, the word conveys the person. Wow. God esteems people. He's not partial. But there are certain behaviors in human beings that please the Lord. Remember what Jesus said of John the Baptist? While John the Baptist, he left in prison when he could have used his miraculous powers to release him. What did he say? Of men born of women, there was no one greater than John the Baptist in the Old Covenant. So Jesus is bragging about him while he chooses to leave him in prison when he could have easily freed him. But you see, he held him in high esteem. 
Another thing too, remember with the Lord before he allows Satan to come and do all the dastardly things he did to Job? Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. A man who fears God and shuns evil. The Lord, shortly before he allowed the devil to try Job by very hot fires, was bragging about him right before that. God does hold people in esteem. Another place that we know this is from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, where the Lord says, this is the person whom I will esteem. The one who is broken and contrite and humble in spirit and who trembles at my word. That's who God holds in esteem. Now, if all this is true and so powerful and effective, Michael, why is it that so relatively few are moved by it? I try everything I can as a preacher, as a teaching evangelist, before I minister. I try to, like I said earlier, pray as much as I can. I never feel like I prayed enough to pray. I try so very hard every single day of my life to be doctrinally sound when there's so much aberrant, ridiculous, foolish, stupid, man-centered teaching that's everywhere. It just, I almost despair many times because of how many of the biggest YouTube platforms have absolutely ridiculous man-centered doctrines and flaky, frivolous stuff and extra revelations instead of dividing the word of God. And so it's like it can be so despairing. So how is it, Lord, that so many hear so many words, but they're not moved like we see the power of your text that you just quoted? Why is it that so few are moved like this? Well, I try, like I said, to be doctrinally sound, to be prayed up. I, I, I entreat the Lord, anoint me, O God, because nothing's worse. When, when the anointing's not there, all you have is a religious service, and nothing's more agonizing than sitting through a religious service. So these are fears I've carried with me all my life in ministry, is not to have these things happen. And yet, and yet, Michael, you have those burdens? Look, think about Jesus. Jesus was the Word of God, embodied in a person. Jesus was the anointed one. That's what Christ means. And most people rejected him. Think about it. Of the four kinds of soil, three rejected him. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, you know the, you know the passage about the you know, strive to enter by the narrow gate. Why, Jesus, why? Because wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many are those who find it. And, what, and narrow is the gate, and restricted is the way that leads to life, and few are those who find it. He was saying that despite all who Jesus was, and he was the anointed one and the word of God in human flesh, most rejected him. Oh, Michael, why do you get out of bed in the morning? Why continue in the ministry? Here's why. Ultimately, the eternal results of what happened from this week of camp, these five days, are ultimately all dependent on him. It says in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, it says Lydia, who was a dealer in fine purple, a cloth which was, it was very, the deal in purple cloth in New Testament times, it was a pretty wealthy occupation. In fact, it even says that I referred to at the very beginning, Luke chapter 16, where it talked about the rich man and Lazarus. It said, Jesus said, behold, there was a certain rich man who said he, he dressed in fine linen and purple and he fared sumptuously every day. So here Lydia is listening to Paul preach the gospel. Now watch, it says in verse 14, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul said. Exodus chapter 33, verse 19 and Romans chapter 9, verse 15, say the same thing. The Lord said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I wish I would have known these truths early in my years as an evangelist. I would have been freed from so much pressure and stress. Why? Because I know ultimately my responsibility is to rightly divide the word of truth and cast the seed, but ultimately God is the one who opens the heart. And the, when you don't know that, the things that preachers do to try to manipulate people to get a decision or put a notch on their belt, 
And then they wonder why so many people fall away. Because they didn't trust the power of the word of God and, and the power of the spirit of God and the results in God's hands. You just give it and the results are up to him. And that's what we're called to do. And that's what we have to do with the children, even though they're children. So what are we going to do this week? By God's grace, we're hoping to harvest children this week and bring them into the kingdom. Amen? God won't use angels to do it. They do a much better job. How do you know? Well, you can be sure angels, though I speak with the tongues of angels, you can be sure angels are very articulate. Angels, the holy elect ones, the sealed ones in holiness, they have no sin issues or flesh or weakness to deal with, unlike we human preachers. Amen? And you can be sure if an angel showed up at your church, you'd have a massive crowd. You see, but God chose not to in his wisdom to use angels. So he uses frail, broken, fallen, weak people. That's how it happens. So we are trusting our Lord that he is going to harvest some children this week who don't know him. And when we do, this is also what we'll do. We're trusting that he's going to use us to lay all kinds of blocks of the foundations of the faith in their lives. Like I've told you many times, I've striven to have these camps text-driven. And my burden, and I've constantly told the preachers this through the many years, is that we just want to keep the, keep the preaching Christ-centered, cross-centered. You know, we want sound theology, sound doctrine, so that these kids have these golden bricks of truth that they can have the rest of their lives. You can say all kinds of stuff, like I said, to hype kids and teenagers up and make it all about them, and you're going to take over the world. You can't even get out of bed in the morning. You're going you're to be the world changer? The stuff that we pump people up with, it's all man-centered, and, 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 then, and then when the meeting's over, you're back to what you were. Why? Because you didn't have the focus be Christ. You had to be man. You just be sure to use, I am determined to know nothing when I am with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we leave the results to God. Now, there's something else that we have to talk about and we have to deal with. So we need to go to the next part of that video. That There's also something uh, that's happening in the unseen world that all of us realize, but I don't know how often we think about it. I don't know where our foe is. Okay. I'm going to show you one other thing that's happening that would, is easily going to happen this week uh, unless the Lord does what he does constantly and faithfully that we don't realize is how many of you have ever seen Lord of the Rings? The only reason I watched it is because my kids were into it when they lived at home and I just, I don't know, it just it was okay, but it doesn't like, oh, I'm a Lord of the Rings fan. But there, I, So I saw all three of the first ones and, um, but the thing that really struck me that I've seen in my mind many, many times is that there were a group of these creatures that were called orcs and they were hideous, they were gruesome, and they just were terrifying to me. I really, I'm so immature and emotional and tender in, in this respect that I, I get easily affected by what I see and listen to. So there are a lot of stuff that I just can't watch because it messes me up. So even thinking about them just kind of this, it just, I get disjunctioned inside. But, but it's a scene I won't forget because the orcs, um, there were 10,000 of them, and they wanted what they were were cannibals. They wanted to feast on the good guys, if they could. I'll never forget preaching in my church in Reading years ago. After I'd already moved to Delaware, I went back to preach at a ministry going on there. And as I was seeking the Lord, and these were inner city kids off the streets, and, 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 and church kids too, and I was just like calling on the Lord for power and help, Lord, I need your help. And all of a sudden, there was like this scene from the movie came to me, and it was like, there are 10,000 orcs around this church building that if they were allowed to, they would kill us all and keep the gospel from being preached. And then one of the orcs, they, he, I remember the scene is that he got angry 
and they started having a fight with another orc, and somehow they beat him down, and then they all just, <laughs> and they started consuming him and eating him alive. It was like, oh, and Michael, why are you bringing this up? It's the nature of the enemy. It's the nature of the enemy. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your enemy, your adversary, the devil, roams to and throw, fro about the earth, seeking whom he may devour. And I don't mean this to be funny, but it helps me remember it. The devil's favorite food is soul food. The human soul is the biggest quest that he has on his agenda. Everything else you think that the devil does, the bottom line reason is that he wants human souls damned with him in the lake of fire. And every single activity that he does that I can think of, the bottom line motivation, why is he doing that? Is because he wants soul, human souls. So what does he do? He accuses God. He, accu he accuses us before God. Why? He wants God to reject us. If God rejects you, you're damned. Then he accuses God to us. And he, he lies about the Lord to us so that we will reject God. What happens then? You're damned. He tempts people all the time, does he not? Wanting them to just indulge in the fleeting pleasures of sin, and they die in their sin, unrepentant. What happens then? You're damned. He constantly comes after preachers and teachers, does he not? And ministers of the word, people who are trying to witness to others. Why? He doesn't want them to receive or hear the gospel. Why, Michael? They're damned. So everything that he does is that bottom line reason. Now, I want you to get you to get, I did this for perspective. This is you and me. Compared to him, that is you and me. I've often said the weakest demon could kill thousands of human beings with no effort. That's how powerful they are. They're terrifying. They're everywhere. They fill the atmosphere, right? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? Spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, the devil is not omnipresent. He has to roam to and fro to get his information and uses his, his minions, his demons, to gather information. He's not omnipresent like the Lord. He's not omniscient like the Lord, not even close. He's not even the second most powerful angel. Uh, he's not even close to being powerful with the Lord. There are a number of holy angels more powerful than him. But you see, we must keep in mind that this is the foe that wants to do everything he could do to stop this week from happening. There are 10,000 orcs, so to speak, around this camp right now. If they were allowed to, they would take us down immediately. They cause the building to collapse. They would they'd kill us instantly or cause a plague or sickness to come on us that would take us out. Why? They don't want the gospel to be preached. So what's going on in the unseen world this week, Michael? What happens every time we gather at these camps? God has holy angels all over the place who are stronger than his. If they weren't, he'd be successful. So all around this building, it's, I don't think about this all the time, and I think too many Christians are way obsessed with angels and demons, but it's nice to remember. Thank you, Lord. Does the Lord need holy angels? No. If the Lord slept, he could, he could keep these guys, you know, while he slept, you know. But he chooses to use holy angels. So all around this camp and around us, the Bible says, they're protecting us. And hallelujah, isn't it comforting to know that they're so powerful that the devil can't get near us? If the devil does get in the ranks, the only way that happens is the Lord has ordained it. The devil can't even think about you without God's permission. And it must pass three criteria for the devil even to think about you, much less touch you or tempt you. What are they, Michael? Number one, will it bring God the most glory? Everything God does the number one reason, and there are no exceptions, is for his glory. That's why he does things or why he doesn't do things. That's why he allows things or chooses to allow things. He always takes the most glory route. 
So if it's going to bring him more glory, what does that mean? That when this action, or what God does or doesn't do, if more of him is going to be known and adored and loved, whether immediately or in the future or in eternity, that's what he chooses to allow or to do. And there are no exceptions to that. So no matter what you go through, thank you, Lord, somehow, somehow, I don't see it, I don't feel it, I don't believe it, but somehow, more of your glory is going to be displayed by allowing this to happen to me in my life than if you kept it happening from me. Second criteria, it will make you more like Jesus. Sooner or later, the Lord will not allow him near you unless whatever he allows him to do, in the end, is going to make you more like Jesus, Romans 8.29. Or it doesn't happen. It's got to bring God more glory than if he prevents it. It's got to make you more like Jesus than he prevents it. And number three, it's for your good. Does he work all things together for your good? Now that means if and when he chooses to allow the evil one to do things this week, those three things I am preaching to myself, you've got to remember. There may be 17 more reasons after that, but the top three, there are no exceptions to it with God's people. More of his glory is going to be revealed. I'm going to be more like Jesus through this sooner or later. And number three, thank you, Lord. I don't see it now. It's for my good. In Jesus' name, you may go. Remember with Job? Does Job fear God for naught? Haven't you put a hedge around him and all he has? Reach out your hand and touch him and all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. What does the Lord say? Watch what God's thinking now before he tells the devil he can do it. Now, he doesn't say this in the text, but begin what we know from all of Scripture. This is what God had to decide. I'm going to let him go and touch everything Job has. Except what does the Lord say? The first time he said, don't lay your hand on him. So what did he do? You know what he did. He lost his children, lost his wealth. And so what happened? Job held fast his integrity. So what did Satan do? He's never satisfied. So he came a second time. And then what did the Lord say? The Lord bragged on Job again. Have you noticed my servant Job? He still retains his integrity, even though you suggested that I let you touch him. And then what did the devil say to the Lord? Skin for skin. Everything a man owns, he'll give for his life. But reach out and touch his body. He will curse you to your face. Remember now, more glory is going to be re revealed. Job is going to be more like Jesus in the end, and it's going to be for his good. That's what you have to remind yourself, beloved. That the Lord would allow something to happen this week. You can tell a lot about a person's theology when things go wrong. Who's the first person they go to? We rebuke you, devil! They don't understand sovereignty. There is a time, of course, to rebuke the evil one. But when that's the first thing you do, something's wrong with your theology. This is like, this is our bedrock. This is what we go to first. Thank you, Lord. Jesus was distressed and troubled in spirit. And he said, Lord... What should I say? Save me from this hour? It's for this hour I came. And what did Jesus say? He was about to be crucified. He said, glorify your name. Jesus knew even through the crucifixion that God's glory was going to be. In fact, it was the greatest display of the glory of God in human history was the cross of Christ. There's never a place, even in creation, where more of God's glorious attributes was displayed than the cross of Christ. So what did Jesus say? He's getting close to it. Lord, save me from this hour? No, it's for this hour I was born. That's why I came. And what did Jesus cry? Glorify your name. And what did God the Father say back to him? I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now, because of the hour, I had a part two of this message in my hopes to get you to cling more tightly to the Lord and to his cross for the week, because I know the more tightly you, cl you cling to him, 
and squeeze him, so to speak, in your heart, the more you're going to radiate Jesus. Um, you're going to radiate him and you're going to spill it on your campers. And I was going to talk about the wrath of God and really elaborate it for part two of this message so that you would be more appreciative of it, that you're saved from it. But here's what I have to do. On Wednesday night, I have to talk about the wrath of God to the children, and they need to know it. And we need the Lord's help. Because my goal for the children, too, is that they're clinging to the cross with dear, for dear life because of being saved from the wrath to come. I wish somebody would have taught me about this when I was a kid. 